I don't know about you, but I'm uh, emotionally drained from that act of remembrance. Um, Poignant, prophetic, I thank those who have put that together to try and bring some kind of word into that from Hosea leaves me disabled at the moment. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what we've already heard, remembered, considered, reflected on, meditated upon. For the ways that you have made us uneasy, helped us to question, inspired us to change. We pray you'll take now these skeletons and very bare bones of my thoughts from Mosaic 5 and somehow use them as grace notes for what we've already heard. In Christ's name, Amen. I read this week these words. Apparently all the people can talk about their famous forefathers, the past wars they won, the glories of their cities, all the good things of life. They are blind to the depravity of their present situation and do not want to face reality. They do not want to admit that they have made mistakes or that the nation is in trouble. Someone talking as he remembered victories in war. Past wars won. Could have been from whatever newspaper you read, I guess. Some magazine I read this week. But it was one of the commentaries on Hosea chapter 5. Here was a people who were almost living off the past wars that they won. The glories that they have and they were missing this truth. That there was mistakes all around and there was things that were needing to be fixed. When you sit in August and prepare your outline of Hosea. And you come up with this idea for Hosea 5 that sits in verse 5 of chapter 5. That you need to look at this arrogant nation. And then you put it together with Roberta in the office with the dates that you have in front of you and you realize that the title for Remembrance Sunday is Arrogant Nation. You can go very uneasy. The sensitivities even as we gathered around to think about what words we can use and how we say things on Sunday when we really want to respect those that we remember. We can be oversensitive. But there it is. Not by plan, seemingly, in earthly terms. Arrogant nation. So let's go through this a little bit and see whether there might be something that we might consider as we think today, maybe, of past wars. One, though for me, I have to say, and I said it tenderly last year, Remembrance Day, and I hope that we've sensed it this morning from stuff that I did not put together. That this is not, as we remembered last year, a victory march. It's a cold and broken hallelujah. It's not so much a celebration proudly that we won, so much as it 
as we've already prayed, a humble confession that some of this congregation of the age of our sixth formers actually died in the photographs that we've just watched should never cause us to be proud but should always cause us I guess to remember them Verse 1 tells us, hear this, you priests, Jonathan, two weeks ago, talked about how that chapter 4 accusation against the priests. Well, hear hear this, you priests, pay attention, you Israelites, listen, royal house. This judgment is against you. There's nobody missing here. The religious leaders, the political leaders, and right there in the middle, pay attention, you Israelites. Yeah, we could blame the churches. Yeah, we could blame the government. But the judgment is for all of us. First lesson, we are not islands. First lesson, Isaiah chapter 6, I am of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. He didn't separate himself as the individual from the nation. And why should we? Because we get the government we deserve. We elect them. We allow it to happen. We are usually influenced by it. And Romans chapter 3 always reminds us as we go and dare to point fingers that other people to blame all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what's the judgment? Well there's a couple of recurring themes here isn't there? In verse 4 and 5, a spirit of prostitution is in their heart. They do not acknowledge the Lord. Verse 4, stop there. We've talked about this already. Gomer, the prostitute, giving themselves, diluting their relationship with God by compromising religions and, and bringing in all kinds of other religions and making themselves, as we hear at the end of this, because war might be looming, we'll make ourselves, we'll hang out with Assyria or somebody else. All kinds of different ways that the people took their eyes off the one they should trust in to make up their own ideas and to engage with other religions, political allegiances, or whatever. But then verse 5, which we haven't got to yet, and which somehow in August, as I look back on it, was the verse that stood out for me in making this chapter's title An Arrogant Nation. Israel's arrogance testifies against them. Israel's arrogance testifies against them. John Calvin in his commentary says, the prophet no doubt applies the word pride because in some of the translations, arrogant is translated as pride. The prophet no doubt applies the word pride to their contempt of instruction because they were so swollen with fear and confidence as to think that the wrong was done them whenever the prophet reproved them. So in other words, Calvin said, they were so holy, they were so victorious in the battles that Israel had won, that no prophet was going to come and tell them that there was anywhere in the nation that they needed to fix. They were so swollen with self-confidence, pride, and arrogance. And then Calvin says, wonderful phrase, inebriated with their own pleasures. Inebriated with their own pleasures. They were so caught up in themselves, 
in their past victories, in their religious and political histories, that they weren't going to listen to anybody because they were arrogantly right. You can see in some of the places, Mizpah, Tabor, Shittim, some of the other places that are mentioned in these verses and in other pieces of Hosea where there are places that you will think to yourself, I heard that before, that's somewhere else in the Bible. Because there are places that victories were won or altars were set up. And somehow these places that were their moments of glory have now been tainted. They thought too highly of things of the past. And we in general, and I'm proud to say, not exclusively, because there are many within our community this morning that are not British or from the United Kingdom. Proud to say that. But in general, we are the United Kingdom. We had a commonwealth. We invented any sport worth playing. We don't win at it, but we invented them. And we won the war. something within us because of all that that makes us a little bit arrogant George Bernard Shaw said patriotism is your conviction that this country is superior to all other countries because you were born in it wow how true your conviction that this country is superior to all other countries because you were born in it And therefore you have the right to do with other countries as you should because you're the country that's right. I remember a book that I couldn't find in the library that I now have in number 26 by John White. Do you remember the fight, those of us who are 45 to 60? That book that gave us that discipleship of how to read the scriptures, how to pray, how to... In another book called The Race... You can see where the people that sold a lot of the fight were trying to go with that title. But in the race, I think it's the race, he said somewhere, something like this. I couldn't find it, but I remember it from way, way back. He said the difference between patriotism and loyalty is that patriotism says my country right or wrong. And that loyalty says my country, but I'm going to critique my country to make sure whether it's right or wrong. Now, there's semantics there. Because you can, you know, it is semantics by John White at that point. But at the bottom line, there is this difference between a blind patriotism and loyalty and what the prophets were. Hosea loved the people of God. He loved the Israelites. He loved these people that he's making, sending this message to. He's doing it for their good. But he's not going to bypass the right and wrong. He's going to make sure that the wrong gets written down so that thousands of years later, Abernethy, Barclay and Stockman will have to make some sense of it. We need prophets who critique with a love for the country, but not a blind patriotism. Where might it? My fear this week as I thought about where the arrogances within our country are is that they would become my thoughts or suggestions and they wouldn't be erudite. But let me share one of them. I am confused a little bit 
and have been all week about this war that we nearly went to over the England team being able to wear poppies on their shirts. First time I remember it ever happening was a few years ago when Manchester City put top poppies on their shirts so that they could sell them after the match for charity and make a lot of money. So within the last few managers, which is not a lot of time when you support Manchester City, England have played 36 times between the 11th and the, or the, let me get it right here, I think I took this down, somewhere between the 10th and the 18th of November, 36 times since the end of World War I. And never until this year has anybody suggested that they would wear a poppy on their shirt. And we had the Prime Minister and the Prince William going to all kinds of European and world bodies to try, and it's not political. The war stopped being political. Now all I'm asking is, what was it at the heart of the nation that felt this grievance because we weren't allowed to, I don't know, was there an arrogance there that brought in, as somebody said in Facebook, why is it so important that a multi-millionaire, testosterone-driven, dimwit like John Terry wears a poppy on his arm that the Prime Minister and Prince William write to FIFA about it? Why? What is it within us? Is it a remembering? Or is it something other? So I had to think to myself, arrogance, pride. Where is that in the Bible? And I came to James chapter 4. Now listen you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. So then if you know the good you ought to do and don't do it, you sin. And I couldn't help as I read that start to think about one of the arrogances that we as humanity and maybe within the UK and Ireland have got lost in over these last number of years. Sean Quinn this week was declared bankrupt. His loans were four billion pounds. Now, if I loaned four billion pounds this afternoon, I would be pretty wealthy. And if I couldn't pay them back next week, I'd be bankrupt. But where were we if we look at James chapter 4? Today or tomorrow we will go to this city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. We're planning to just be as rich as we possibly can. We're going to make the stocks and shares soar. We're going to put our trust in stocks and shares because somebody has told us that the lottery's sin. So we'll gamble in bigger amounts and more respectable ways and we will get so rich that what? The arrogance. When you're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And Jesus talked about the man with the barns and made it very plain. 
the human arrogance that we can mess with other people and with the environment of God's good earth in order that we would do better in the end of year stock share to those who've invested. Is there an arrogance there? And is it not sweetly ironic that the occupiers of London had nowhere else to go but church grounds? And accidentally they fell into St. Paul's Cathedral, which has had every politician in the country being asked, what would Jesus do? How amazing that right there on the edge of the financial arrogant center of our nation, there are people gathered around a church building. Somebody said this week, the fault line between God and mammon. What if we were so humble that we decided it wasn't a fault line between, but that St. Paul's was a sieve by which the word of God sieved out all the ethical, moral decisions made in that financial quarter for the poor of our country and for the poor of the rest of the world. Vince Cable, this morning on the BBC, I think it does reflect the feeling that a small number of people have done extraordinarily well in this crisis, often undeservedly, and large numbers of other people who've played no part in it have been hurt by it. This goes back to the heart of the prophets. From the books of the law, right through to when they set up the widow's fund in the new church at in the Acts of the Apostles, we find that God, whatever he says about finances, whatever he says about economic systems, and you guys can write those theories better than I can write those theories, but whatever way you write them, at the heart of our scriptural belief is that God rages when people get wealthy at the cost of other people being oppressed and the earth being damaged as a result. But arrogant financiers and arrogant leaders of nations and don't put ourselves out of it we're caught up in something we might well need to humble ourselves about and realize that many will not turn to God because to get through the eye of a needle is not an easy thing if you're a camel and to serve God and money was not God's plan. Couldn't help, I'm sorry, but it's the resource and the reservoir uh, deep within me. But think as I read James chapter 4, don't make these plans because you're just a mist that appears a while and then vanishes of the Beatle John Lennon who a few months before he died, tragically, when he had plans for albums and tours, said life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. There was a wisdom and humility that perhaps James would recognize. But let's get down to it before I close. Arrogant nation, arrogant stockmen. Arrogant nation, arrogant individuals that make up the nation. What about us? Let's think about that James passage. Let's think about Romans 12 Where Paul says, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed each of you. 
Because we can't come here and say, well, we have more right to speak the truth because we have got a theological degree. I don't have a theological degree. I have a master's degree. I don't have a master's degree. I have a PhD. I don't have a PhD. I work in Union College. I don't work in Union College. I'm at Oxford or Harvard. It's the amount of grace and faith that God has distributed to us. And we're to see ourselves with that kind of sober judgment. And we're to see ourselves, it says, each of us, just as each of us has one body with many members, so these, mem- that these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we though who many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Now here is a truth that I think I came clear to this week about all of this, and that is that we were put into a system. Now, you'll know Stockman, not the biggest for bureaucratic systems. No. I would laugh louder. Um, However, there are systems within which there are freedoms to be that we live within. Genesis chapter 1 to 3 gives us the system of what it is to be human in relation to God who made us, in relation to each other, in relation to the earth. It's all there. We're within this system. And if we work within this system, playing our part in that system, then all is going to be well. But then the story takes that twist. As I've said endless times before, and we'll say again because I think it's a great image, we reach to be bigger than we were in getting that fruit off that tree and we became less than we were because sin tainted all and we were somehow no longer in this system with the balance of what that system was. Frederick Beekner talks about sin as that which pushes outward. And when we, humanity, decided that we would reach to be further than human and try to be like God, we suddenly became less and the sin that all of us have done and fall short of the glory of God pushes us out from the environment, from each other, from God and distorts that balanced picture of the system. When we distort it by some having more than others having less, when the earth being abused in order that some might have more, when God's not in the equation, suddenly everything goes wrong. And we've got to find ourselves back in that system. Jesus came to live and die and to be raised to life, that we might somehow bring a kingdom that is within that system back into the world again. And here there's another system in Romans chapter 12. We each are part of that body, that system, where we get arrogant and say, I'm more important than them, or I'm more holy than them, or I can make that decision better than them. Then we start to push each other out of the body parts again, and we find the leg somewhere down the street with the head somewhere up the street. If we as a congregation are going to move forward for God, we've got to find ourselves back in that system where each of us humbly plays our part and sees ourselves as part of the other. Don't judge, but love. I put up on the crazy fifth prayer night, which was accent, I think you'll agree, because Norman McKinley said it off in such a good manner. I put up on the screen sort of jokingly, and on my second anniversary as your minister, I can say it to you all this morning, I put up on the screen, if you want a better minister, 
then pray for the one you have. Because Jerry has said it. He's not going away, you know. And so if you guys want a better minister, pray and love us as a man's family into being better than we are because we humbly come before you and say we are on a serious learning curve every day. But in case you're not aware of it, two years in and well past the honeymoon, so are you. Every one of us is on that learning curve. Every one of us has got quirks and foibles. And if we live within the system that God has put down, not arrogantly, but humbly playing our part, not judging each other, but loving each other, that doesn't mean we don't critique. Oh, no, 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 no. But then we can create within us a body of believers that might just be able to help with that system that we're trying to bring in the kingdom. And so my final quote to you, how are we doing? How arrogant are we or how humble are we? Facebook is just a bombardment of quotations. And somebody put this one up this week and it nearly knocked me off the chair I was sitting on. Said this. You love God as much as the person. You love God as much as you love the person you least like. You love God. If you want to know how much you love God, don't think it's because you love your wife because she is lovely. And If you want to make an audit on how much you love God, let's start local. You want to start it with an easy course. I love God as much as I love the person that I least like in this building at this moment in time. And then if you want to do the A level. I love God as much as I love the person I least like in this city. And if you want to go to your arrogant nation. You know where it all comes down to? Acknowledging God in the system. If we take God out of the system of us related to him, the earth and each other, it all falls apart and we will have war. If we take him out of his place at the center of the body of Christ, with all us playing our part, then we fall apart and become useless to him. To put it all back together, two things. Acknowledging God's place at the center of it. Kneeling in humility before him and confessing. And then humbly playing our part. Loving each other. Let's pray.